0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Any list of the great veteran political writers in this country would have to include Karen Tumulty of The Washington Post uh, through the years at The LA Times, Time Magazine, and now The Post. Uh, she's been one of the most insightful political reporters I've read, uh, partly because she actually goes out and reports goes out and talks to voters, uh, and uh, tries to get a pulse of the country, uh, not from polling, but from her interactions with people. Karen has been a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago uh, this quarter, and we had a chance to sit down uh, and talk about her career in journalism, about Donald Trump and what that's meant for political coverage, and about her upcoming book on Nancy Reagan. Karen Tumulty, first of all, welcome, and um, also thank you for being a fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. It's a pleasure to have oh, you. Oh,
0: it's so great to be here. I'm having such a wonderful time.
1: You, um, There's a lot of talk about military families uh, these days. Uh, you, you, You are— From a military family, tell me about that.
0: Um, Well, my father was in the Air Force. Uh, By the time I graduated from high school, I graduated from my twelfth school, so we moved around quite a bit.
1: Um, Wait, hold on one second, because I want to know what that is, what that's like for a kid.
0: Well, it was um, it was during the Vietnam War era, and so um, you know, it, it felt like a whole separate culture that we were living in from the rest of the country uh, you know our our dads were being assigned over in my my father's case he didn't serve in Vietnam he he was an intelligence officer however in Thailand so um, it, we just we moved a lot it there was a a, a certain again kind of culture on of, of our own and you know you would run into kids like in second grade on one base, and then you'd run into some of the same kids in fifth and sixth and seventh grade and some other base.
1: And was it difficult?
0: It was, it was. Um, I, uh, I would
1: think, geez, kids, you know, you make friendships and then you have to leave and now you're coming to new environments and.
0: Exactly. You were always the new kid. And, um, I, I think in some ways it, it, really required me to be able to socialize and and make friends pretty quickly but it it was always it was there was always this kind of sadness about leaving behind friends everywhere
1: you had brothers and sisters or-
0: I have two brothers one of my brothers is much younger and by the time he was born my father was was out in the military but I have an older brother as well um who and you know we were in, actually ended up being in the same grade by weirdness of our uh, our birthdays. So mm-hmm.
1: you, uh, so San Antonio became. Uh, if you were to say you were from a place, I'm, you would well, be San Antonio, Texas.
0: Well, my mother's family has very, very deep roots in San Antonio, and in fact, my grandfather. And so, in many of our assignments, for instance, when my father would get sent overseas to a place we couldn't go, like Thailand, um, we would end up being back in San Antonio. And my I, that is uh, my grandfather was a. Uh, county commissioner there for 32 years and mm. ultimately the county judge. And um, so and I have a huge, huge extended family there.
1: Yeah. So you, you've been around politics. Huh? Yes. It, was, it, it was it was not new to you when you started writing about it. L- let me ask you from the standpoint of uh, I think people often wonder like, what do reporters bring? And I have this question for you in, in several different contexts. But what does a reporter bring? to their work uh, in terms of, 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 of context itself. When you hear about military families, when you see this contratemps between the president, for example, and uh, Mrs. Johnson after the loss of her husband and so on, uh, does it have any bearing on how you view this having come from a military family?
0: Yeah, it, the truth is it kind of makes me sick to my stomach in part because I grew up around kids who lost in the ones I knew all all their it was fathers. But mm-hmm. you know, you would you and again, I I just know uh, vague memories, but I I know the pain and I really do think that probably the president did not intend mm-hmm. to seem insensitive uh, i also think that the the feelings of the widow were very genuine and need to be respected and i'm there's just a part of me that's really sad that we that this has even turned into it a is. political fight
1: i think most of the country would like not to have experienced This, but there is something I I quite agree with you. That was my reaction when I, I could easily see how he could say what uh, he said, or what everyone seems to agree that he said, uh, and that she could interpret it a different way than he meant it. But once she said she interpreted it a different way, it seems like the president, though the 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 humane and appropriate thing to do would be to say, "I'm sorry." I, if I, if you know my words were hit you the wrong way, but we deeply grieve your loss and you know stand with you and your family. He just can't get there.
0: I, I it's really surprising too because it 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 could have brought all of this to an end so quickly. And I think that uh, you know sending General Kelly out there then uh, just sort of kicked up that much more dust around it. And and uh, even not coming from a military family, but especially coming from a military family, I mean, I do have a sense of what lies ahead for this family and the sadness and the coming to terms with things. Um it's almost the same too. That I, I had friends whose fathers were POWs during the Vietnam War, and it took such a toll on the family. And there were so many marriages that mm-hmm. that didn't survive even after the you know the father came home.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's um. This is one of the uh, this is one of the the aspects of Trump that um, seems immutable uh, it seems uh, unchangeable I mean he he needs to win every exchange uh, even if it's with a uh, a 24 year old widow uh, who's going through this terrible trauma and I think he doesn't recognize the uh, what this does not just to her but to the country and to him uh, but uh, and general Kelly I thought, started off talking about his own experiences very moving, but then got mired in the same controversy. And rather than elevating the president, I think he lowered himself. It, the whole thing was a very unfortunate episode.
0: And it's it, the problem is that it's about winning and not about healing.
1: Yeah. But you know what? The president's dad, I guess, uh, famously told him that the, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are killers and there are losers. Uh, and uh, that doesn't leave a lot of room for anything in the middle, right? So, um, journalism. You went to the University of Texas. How did you wander into journalism?
0: Um, well, I was I was always fascinated. Uh, I think starting in high school with the idea of being a reporter, and uh, always interested in politics. In part from seeing, you know, my grandfather as a local politician. I went to work right out of college at my local newspaper, struggling daily newspaper even then. and The it, San
1: Antonio light.
0: The no longer which existing. Is, which has passed
1: into darkness. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Somebody yeah. turned off the light.
0: <laughs> uh, and so it occurred to me, though, that um, I, it, you know, the, the one part of newspapers that seemed to be growing were their business sections at the time. And that maybe if I could Go. I was doing a little bit of business writing. If I could go and kind of really learn the to be fluent in business, um, that I you know might be able to make the leap to a much bigger paper. So I went back and got an MBA, uh, and uh, then moved to the Los Angeles Times. Was there covering business for a few years, and then moved to Washington. Yeah,
1: you went off to Harvard and got an MBA. Right. You're being, you're, you're well, not, you're bearing the lead there, as I, they say in journalism. Well, but. I,
0: I pride myself on pulling down my class salary average. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, uh, tell me what it was like, uh, for you as a woman at that time in journalism. Um, you're, you're probably the, the preeminent, certainly one of the preeminent women in, in, in American political journalism, uh, today, but, uh, I remember the 70s, you know, the book was called The Boys on the Bus about covering the 1972 presidential race. It wasn't the kids on the bus. It wasn't the boys and the girls on the bus. It was the boys on the bus for a reason. It was all boys. Um, were Were there barriers or expectations or were those pretty much gone by then?
0: Well, I really think there were there was a whole generation of women ahead of me, just not that far ahead of me. But there was a point at which, for instance, uh, women couldn't join a lot of the professional organizations in Washington. I believe at the National Press Club, women would have Roman reporters would have to sit in the balconies. I mean, blessedly, uh, I I that sort of thing wasn't happening. It wasn't. So unusual, and how about
1: the, in business reporting?
0: There weren't as many uh, women in business, and certainly in business school. In my class, it was seventeen percent women. Mm-hmm. We, we still had urinals in the ladies' rooms, mm-hmm. uh, so but it, it didn't. It did feel like a lot of women, not a lot of women, but enough women had gone ahead of me and really pushed down some of the really hard barriers. It was interesting, though, too that. Um, sort of being on the bus, by the time I got to the bus, I began to realize that the, you know, on the bus was not quite the the prestigious. The prestigious political reporters were the ones who sort of wandered in at the big moments and yeah. got to write the big stories, as opposed to those of us who were sitting there just waiting for a candidate to uh, commit a gaffe or, you know, keel over or something. Yeah, and that's
1: still t- uh, true today. I mean, one of the things that... Uh that I think we miss, and it may have to do with budgets for news organizations, is that there isn't this sort of class of elite reporters sort of roaming the country and actually interacting with with voters on a regular basis. We, As we sit here uh, today and record this discussion, uh, we're going to tonight uh, have an event here at the University of Chicago remembering David Broder, who was really the preeminent Political journalist of his time. And the thing that he was famous for was knocking on doors. Right. Actually, going out, getting in a car, going to communities all over the country, going, knocking on doors, going to diners, going to taverns, going to VFW halls, and actually talking to people, which uh, doesn't happen as much anymore.
0: And not just because news organizations don't have the resources. I think there has become this sort of fetish uh, in political science that has kind of infected the media, which is this idea that the quality of the candidate doesn't matter, that... uh, you know that nothing really matters except this this kind of set of statistics what's the state of you know growth in personal income what's the average of the polls This some uh, this idea that somehow you can get a truer picture of what's really going on in the country and in, in the electorate by you know studying numbers rather than talking to people
1: you um uh, you said some interesting things in advance of the 2016 uh, election, uh, and you were on uh, C-SPAN two weeks before the election, and I want to get back to your story, but right. uh, as, as long as we're on this point... Um, and you said of Hillary Clinton, she's the most establishment figure in America. And when I'm out talking to Trump voters, they've seen the last three presidents in a row saying somehow I can make Washington, make the system work better. And voters don't buy it anymore. Their basic premise is you got to blow it up. So Hillary Clinton, you talk about her proposals and they primarily, as Obama argues, built in on what he already has done. build on what he already's done. She really can't position herself as an agent of change. So what she had to do is remind people of what they find unacceptable about Donald Trump. It seems to me that was the reason I read all of that Mm -hmm. is it was very, very smart. uh, And uh, it was missed by a lot of people uh, that in an election that was rife with a mood for change, she was the sort of avatar of the status quo, and Donald Trump was the pile driver, promising to take the the establishment out. And it seems to me that was like fundamental to what happened on, uh, you know, leaving the Russians aside, Comey, and all of these things that had an impact. That seems to be a major dynamic, or seemed to be.
0: It it was, and and you also got the sense uh, that you know the, the Selina Zito, they took him seriously, but not literally, this idea that they didn't care about the outrageous things he said. They just felt like he would come in and not only shake things up, but that he wouldn't get pushed around by the system. Um, A lot of times people I was talking to, especially in the upper Midwest, they felt like they had been pushed around so much, Um, whether it was by status quo politicians or the forces of Wall Street or whatever. And they just... Kind of seem to want somebody who would not would not keel over.
1: I, I think that's the other basic uh, the basic thing that's coursing through our politics is we live in these revolutionary times where technology globalization has created enormous opportunity for some, great disruption in the lives of others and a lot of anxiety and you add to it the whole social media environment in which uh, all of those sentiments can be amplified uh, and you have a, kind of a caustic mix uh, but you wouldn't have known a lot of that if you had sat at your desk at the Washington Post reading uh, polling data
0: polling data and economic you know the the it, I, there are just um, supposedly all these real and I'm you know really smart political scientists who come up with these these models that almost suggest that that people don't matter in politics anymore.
1: Yeah, well, that was um, certainly there. There was I, who was the guy who, on based on econometrics and so on, pred- predicted that Trump would win long in advance. The good thing about that racket is that someone's going to be right, right. And if you're the outlier, you look like a genius. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, from my own experience, the the nature of the candidates is not. Inconsequential, uh, certainly was in this case. So, tell me how you made the transition from uh, from business reporting to uh, political reporting.
0: Well, I had been um, on the business staff in uh, L.A. for a couple of years, and they an opening came up in in Washington to cover the California delegation, which was. It was great. First of all, Congress was and remains my very favorite beat in Washington. because Why is that? Because they can't get away from you. They can't not talk to you. They have to come out of their offices to vote. They have to uh, – very often you can go home with them. You can see their parts of the country through their eyes. It's just not an opportunity I ever got. For instance, when I was a White House reporter where you're kind of at the mercy of whoever decides you're worth – calling back that day. You can't just wander the building.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a, that's a a prestigious beat and a very frustrating one because reporters like to report and you can't do a lot of reporting from the White House press room. You're just basically waiting to be fed.
0: And and members of Congress, and I don't know, I'm not up there as much as I was, but it used to be, for instance, I remember Tom Daschle when he was a, you know, mid-90s, you know, so he's not really high up in the Senate leadership. I decided to go home with him to South Dakota to sort of look at rural health care. He was very heavily involved in the issue. Well, it was two days of me and Tom Daschle in a car with a roadmap between us, and he would just say, well, there's an interesting town over there. Why don't we go see how the local pharmacy is doing? The the kind of access that you can often get to members of Congress, or at least that you used to, uh, was just extraordinary. And by getting access to them, you got access to their constituents.
1: How do you think that that has changed? Um, We still you still see members of Congress being chased down in hallways. John McCain has lobbed several grenades uh, from going from uh, one place to another, and just in the last few. uh, weeks, some you know, and seems to be relishing uh, doing it, but uh, but it it doesn't. The institution itself seems much different than when you uh, began covering it.
0: And it's it well, it started I think with the presidency. You you read the you mentioned the boys on the bus that that book. This idea that you had a whole bunch of reporters sitting around in a bar drinking with presidential candidates that that just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, campaigns. Are, they, they sort of like put the candidate in shrink wrap. You can't get anywhere near him or her. You um, the, the opportunities to see a real human being uh, are much fewer than they used to be. And they have many more ways of getting their message out that don't involve a reporter <coughs> for a large news organization.
1: Well, look at what's happening now. I mean, uh, how many days— Over the last nine months, and actually before, uh, has the major news story of the day been determined by what Donald Trump uh, says on Twitter?
0: But I would argue that that your guy, Barack Obama, also was kind of a pioneer in that. He went, I don't know how many years, without giving a sit-down interview to a beat reporter of the Washington Post. But you would find him between two ferns and uh, on The View, and uh it, you guys were very creative in in getting your message out I'm not saying it was a it was a, it was a smart decision to do yeah uh, but, but it's a new kind of challenge for us because we've got to find new inroads into what is the essence of these people and new ways to you know, explain them and to understand the constituencies that are driving them.
1: Without the kind of access that you would want, want to do it. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Karen Tumulty. The, uh, not in any way to get into a debate yeah. about this, but part of the issue is uh, of, of where presidents go to, do interviews and to communicate is where you find your audiences and uh, when uh, president obama uh, went on between two ferns uh, he did that because he was trying to reach young people who he was encouraging to uh, sign up uh, for the affordable care act and that was a, a good place to find right. them. so uh, you know for office holders uh, it's a much more nuanced and complicated media environment. Uh, you know, when I, and I was a political reporter, I started off in roughly the same era that that you did. Uh, it was much easier for candidates in certain ways uh, to. Everybody was sort of watching the same. Uh, the same. Outlets, and there weren't that many of them.
0: Yeah, I've I've often joked that if you if you ever really want to get any decent access to a candidate, it it has to be before they start winning, Uh, because once you know, once that happens, they are somewhere else.
1: That's really, to me, one of the um, one of the the real values of the much maligned Iowa caucuses, the New Hampshire primary, uh, because there you see. Candidates for president of the United States who actually have to interact with voters, and you've covered these uh, many of these yourself, Um, there's a certain charm to it where 12 people in a living room uh, get to have at someone who might be the next president of the United States.
0: And traditionally, and there have been exceptions, obviously Hillary Clinton had Secret Service before, Obama for specific circumstances had Secret Service early, but traditionally the candidates don't get the Secret Service until after New Hampshire, and at that point everything changes as well. I, there's a at that point you also have a distance between them and the voters. It's just they can't move as fast, they can't be as close to the voters as well. So you really. It is so crucial to be there for those first few contests.
1: You um you you spent a a decade or so at the LA Times?
0: I did. I was there for 14 years.
1: And then you uh and then you moved over to Time Magazine. Tell me what the transition was like from writing for a daily newspaper uh to a news magazine.
0: Well, it was funny. Margaret Warner, who had been at Newsweek at mm-hmm. one point, pulled me aside and said, Transition is going to be so huge. She said, When I got to Newsweek, if they had, it couldn't have been any more of a culture change if they had told me to write my stories in Chinese. Um, it, at the beginning, at least, that was it. You had one big deadline a week. You would be there on Friday nights and sometimes till 5 a.m. on Saturday. You had to pace your reportings all week long so that it would be for that one that one big deadline. By the time I left Time, however, in 2010, we were still putting out the weekly magazine, but I had a blog, I was tweeting, I was writing for the web. Um, I, I do think that the differences among the different types of media are no longer as pronounced as they used to be. We're all expected to do video now. We're all expected to just have you know a quick reaction to a news event a lo- you know a longer term reaction and and it's
1: the, the question is is that good I, I mean you know it seems like perspective is hard to come by when you're you know even uh if you're uh, wise and uh have a lot of experience perspective is hard to come by on the fly.
0: It that is so true. And I in in 2000, I think 13, I decided uh, what now feels like a very prescient story. I decided to go figure out what was going on in West Virginia. And I was really grateful because I would come back to my editors and say I don't think I quite have this yet. Why a blue state was turning red. And ultimately, the Washington Post sent me to West Virginia six times. And I, I practically could have registered to vote there by the end of it, but it it took that much time to really get past the fact that there were a lot of remote parts of the state where, if I introduced myself as a Washington Post reporter, the wall immediately went up, and it took a long and you don't get that. Did luxury. you
1: go all San Antonio on them? I,
0: I, it's it was really you know it really took a lot of work and. The current, you know, the schedules and the resources don't permit that as much as... as- yeah, and the Post
1: is really kind of unusual now because uh, of uh, Jeff Bezos bought the newspaper. He's got a little disposable income.
0: Right.
1: And, uh, and so he's actually staffed up and devoted more resources, uh, which is a gift. But you look across the country at, uh, at other news organizations... Ah, uh, particularly local news newspapers. I mean, I, my my old newspaper, the Tribune, and others. And uh, it's shocking uh, at uh, what's happened there, just in terms of the resources that are available and the viability of these papers. I mean, the Light was uh, a forerunner of right. what was going to be a sad uh, a sad trend here.
0: And even the you know the news magazines. When I first got to Time, if if you were working on a cover story, that was a really big deal. And doors would open to you. And, um, you tell an
1: interesting story about Newt Gingrich when you were assigned <laughs> to to uh, To write his uh, as a man of the year back in the '90s. Well,
0: actually, it was even before that. I was at time for all of three weeks. At that point, I got there in October of 1994, and it was looking like something was happening. It's right it was before
1: the, new- the Gingrich Revolution uh, took over the House of Representatives.
0: And so they, they he wasn't he was traveling on a like a six seater jet, and he wasn't letting any press travel with him. This will let you know about the resources. At one point. The Washington Post reporter, then Lloyd Grove, and I actually ch- had to charter our own plane to follow him. But it was getting really you know, difficult. And so I somehow let drop that the, the editors were thinking of putting him on the cover, which is something that had never happened to Newt Gingrich. And the next thing I know, I get one of the six seats on his jet. <laughs> and I said, I was kind of mystified because I'd been covering for years <laughs> with the LA Times. And I said, so why did you let me have a seat on your jet and he was able to tell me from memory how many Time Magazine covers Richard Nixon had been on and I said how do you even know that and he said well they said it at his funeral.
1: Huh. Yeah, so that was the the goal there. That was a uh, something to aim for. Yes. Did you end up writing about him?
0: I did. I wrote many covers about him by the time by the time we were He finished. probably knows exactly how He man. probably does.
1: Yeah. Why uh uh why did you decide to go back to The Post or back to daily journalism?
0: Um, because the Kevin Merida, who was then the national editor at The Washington Post, came to me and said, I want you to do exactly what you're doing for Time, but I want you to do it for us. And, um, you know, the financial pressure on the news magazines was becoming very clear. I think the Time Bureau, when I got there in 1994... If you count support staff and everybody would have had over 30 people, it was down to under 10. Um, And so it wasn't like the Post was looking like that good of a bet at the time either. But I felt like if I was going to cover politics, I might as well do it for an audience that was really um, obsessed with the subject. Shortly after I got there, the post hired Marty Barron, who I'd known from the LA Times. In Mm -hmm. fact, he'd been best man at my wedding, and then a year that's knowing him, uh, That that would be knowing him. And uh, then a year after that, Jeff Bezos bought the paper, and I think between the kind of leadership we have now and the kind of resources that are available, Marty Barron's an
1: excellent, excellent newsman.
0: It's it's the paper is just uh, a very different place than it felt.
1: This I shouldn't let drop this point you make about the things that are expected of a reporter now in terms of, you know, well, blogging is almost quaint but <laughs> uh, but tweeting and various forms of social media, taking your own video. Um, it, it's I, I'm, I'm trying to think back to when I was doing the work. Uh, but that just it seems like a much more burdensome, job
0: it is um it's sometimes you feel like inspector gadget out Mm. there um it's it's different kinds of pressures and um you've just got to hope that there come these times when you can kind of make the space for the the kinds of stories that at the end of the year you're going to really remember uh, and there, that's getting harder and harder to do.
1: What's been gained and what's been lost? I mean, there obviously there's an immediacy. Uh, if you have a scoop, as it were, in the quaint language right. of another time, uh, and you can tweet tweet it out uh, right away, you can get in the mix uh, right away. Um, Everyone, because they all have cell phones, is kind of a journalist now. So there's video available that wasn't available before. There, there are certainly advantages to, uh, to the new media environment. What, what has been lost?
0: Um, one thing is that I think we're all being drawn into the argument. The, the it's, it's really hard to stay out of the, the shouting match that that politics has become um, the immediacy has a lot of advantages but it is also again becomes you become just part of an echo chamber my real my real problem I think is that I think we've lost a sense of proportion I think that, in this digital era, has a tendency to make big things look small and small things look big. Mm-hmm. Proportionality is is really hard to maintain.
1: Yeah, I think it's also the the uh, the prevalence of cable news uh, also contributes because there is a desire to get eyeballs. So, you know, you want to pump up stories,
0: but every controversy feels like it's it's the same size, right? Uh, you know, major well, I mean, transgressions and, listen, and think, minor ones. You know, in
1: terms of governing, I can tell you, and this is true of reporting as well. I mean, the real, real talent, the the the, the real demand that is hard to satisfy is recognizing when to chase rabbits down the hole and when not to. The problem for journalists is, uh, for, for government, the problem is if a story gets trumped up, if it's big, no pun intended, it if were. it gets pumped up— uh, you know, there's an expectation that you are going to engage in it if you're the president of the United States or if you're uh, a public official. Um, from the journalist uh, standpoint, if you don't, even if you have skepticism about the magnitude of a story, if everyone else is doing it, there's enormous pressure, competitive pressure, to to write about that, and you can you can do it in a sort of backhanded way and cover the media spectacle. But the fact of the matter is you have to jump in the pool.
0: There is also a, you know, it it becomes little kids soccer because uh, everyone can see what's getting read. Not only can you see which stories are getting the clicks you can, you can see people are reading two paragraphs into this story and then they're leaving for something else. It's um, it's the, the feedback is immediate And it is not conducive to saying, we're just going to let this one slide. Mm -hmm. And if you have one headline on a subject that everybody wants to click on, then you ought to have two headlines and three headlines and four headlines and six headlines. And so sometimes you will go onto the homepage of major news organizations and you will see seven different stories Mm -hmm. about basically the same subject.
1: Yeah. The other element is... um, Inevitably, if there is a um, emphasis on speed, um, there is going to be some sacrifice in terms of accuracy. It, it just has to be. You know, uh, I, I've said before here. I think one of my favorite um, uh, mottos, or was from a guy named A. A. Dornfeld, who was a famous long-time managing editor at the City News Bureau which was a legendary news outlet you know from the front page era through uh, the 70s and or maybe a little bit later produced a lot of great uh, journalists but Dornfeld had a sign on his wall that said if your mother says she loves you check it out and the message was clear which was get it right and when i was a young reporter that was that was the cardinal rule, and you wouldn't rush a story if there was any question about any of the facts of that story. But it's Today, more there's than g-
0: facts. I mean, it's also questions about tone and significance. Yeah. Take a breath. And right. that, I think, is... There's even, no time
1: to breathe now.
0: I think and that is even um, more of a problem, because we have tools now that we can fact-check ourselves pretty quickly. You don't have to, you know, Google is there to help us all. But... I think that where, it, it, where the bigger and the more significant mistakes are being made are in tone and context and significance.
1: Let me ask you about that because you're on Twitter. I follow you, uh, and a lot of journalists are, and it invites, um, it invites opinion and oftentimes that opinion is without nuance because it's hard to be nuanced in 140 characters. Um, do you ever have any concerns about, uh, about that? And oh, yeah. About compromising your own sort of, uh, you know, I, I mean, objectivity is a strange concept because we're all people, but compromising your standing as someone who is r- r- looking responsibly at, Stories.
0: I, I think that anybody who is on Twitter a lot has probably sent a tweet or two along the way that that they regret.
1: Are you listening, Mr. President?
0: Right.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's also um, you've got to engage Twitter on its own terms too. You you cannot be tweeting things like the House voted Thursday to <laughs> rename yeah. a post office two hundred and forty six to one hundred and thirty two. There's a certain edge that that Twitter demands, and I think it is possible to be edgy without being ideological. But the fact is, you know, you've got a body of work in your Twitter feed, and sometimes people will just grab one tweet as opposed to, but, you know, I've also tweeted things that are critical on this subject.
1: yeah. I had this experience the other day because I, I saw General Kelly, and I, all I saw was the tape of him talking about his son, and and uh, I thought this was moving and powerful, and I, I tweeted to that effect. I later then saw the other half of his presentation where he was really going after the Congresswoman uh, Wilson in a very uh, unfair way, and uh, I tweeted that having seen this, you know, I think this went over the line. But uh, a lot of people saw only the first tweet and were unhappy about uh, that. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's the nature uh, of the thing. What about Trump himself and the tone of politics? I mean, he seems to have had an enormous impact on the sort of nature of, of discourse uh, as we speak today today. Uh, Senator Corker got into another exchange with uh, Trump. Uh, I will I would say that the five tweets that Trump sent were a little more intemperate than Corker's uh, remarks. But it se- he he seems to draw people into these kind of mud wrestling matches with which he seems very comfortable.
0: He he's I think he thinks it works to his advantage um, and. It It isn't like these feelings haven't always been there in Washington. Um, I remember decades ago, one time hearing Congresswoman Lynn Martin of Illinois walking onto the House floor and muttering, this place is a preschool where nobody's had a nap. <laughs> but uh, t- Twitter <laughs> gets it all out there. And, uh, you know, it's President Trump is has decided that for some reason for some
1: well he's president that may be part of the reason
0: And, and he he's i think he just thinks this this gets this is the most immediate way to get into the bloodstream
1: yeah you know the problem with it is obvious uh you know lincoln used to write letters in anger and stick them in the drawer for a week and then reread them before he sent them to see if he really wanted to send that letter there's no filter there's no reflection On Twitter, this exchange with Corker happened minutes after Corker appeared on television and urged the president to stay out of the tax reform thing and let the professionals handle it. Uh, I thought it was a weird choice of words, but uh, Trump then unloaded a barrage. I mean, and so there's, you know, there's no filter uh, that would stop him. And presidents, the words that presidents speak get heard.
0: You know, it's it's interesting too because I keep
1: thinking, or tweet. I should say. well,
0: it's for other presidents. You know, their biographers in the future have to like dig and dig and dig and to, to get to the sort of essence of the character and the the what the thought processes were at any given moment. Whoever's the you know Michael Beschloss of the you know post Trump era, you've just got. You've got to read of the front lobe of this guy's brain, uh, particularly in the mornings, uh, of every day of his presidency.
1: Yeah. We're going to take another break, and we'll be back with Karen Tumulty. Your newspaper has been had a sort of odd relationship uh, with President Trump. Uh, At times, you know, he was uh, threatening to expel them from the campaign expel them from the White House, I guess. Um, uh, and yet, on the other hand, he'll pick up the phone and call some of your reporters. I think Bob Costa is a favorite yeah. recipient uh, of these calls and um, share his thinking on things. I mean, what do you what do you make of that?
0: Well, he for there was a point during the campaign where he. It announced that nobody from the Washington Post was, was going to have credentials to get into any of his events. And so what we would do is send reporters, and they would stand in the long lines with the public, and they would just go as members of the public. But it during that time, during that period, uh, my colleague Phil Rucker showed up in an event, and the next thing you know, he's being invited to have lunch with Trump. So, you know, it it is uh, – there's a codependency with the media and Trump uh, that I think is also something that future historians are going to have a lot of interest in.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You, you've spent a lot of time uh, writing about the political moments in which uh, we have been. Um, This one is obviously unusual, not just because of Trump, but because of the extraordinary polarization that we have. Um, where have you been able to give much thought to where you think this is going is the trump uh, is this a is this a uh, an epic that will pass and and politics will return to where it was or um will he become a model for future candidates who care much less about political parties than about their own persona
0: i find it hard to figure that one out. Uh, I, I remember, you know, during the 2012 campaign, Barack Obama's favorite phrase seemed like it was break the fever, you know, that, that an election could, could break the fever, it could sort of reset everything back to normal. Yeah, and it's kind of
1: sweltering right now. Yeah.
0: And, you know, then one cycle later, it's anything but breaking the fever. So what exactly comes along to stop this this cycle, this sort of frenzy that we are in, I can't, it, it seems like it would have to be some kind of towering figure emerging on the scene. I just don't see it coming.
1: I, um, you know, one of the things that concerns me is um, we have this democracy and these institutions are built to be plotting in a way, they're built to be reflective, they're built with these checks and balances that, by definition, make it a kind of clunky. Uh, lumbering process. And, um, uh, and, and, and yet, uh, as we've discussed, events move so quickly now, people expect action. And, um, so you've got on the one hand this polarity that makes it even harder to get things done and a greater expectation of action because of the immediacy of all the coverage, because social media and all the money in politics is pushing in various Directions, and you you worry about whether our institutions are agile enough uh, to handle the pace at which uh, demands come, events challenge challenge them.
0: It's uh, the processes just don't even work. I cannot recall the last time a piece of legislation went to a conference committee on Capitol Hill. The the processes that we all learned. Uh, just they—they. They, they, it's just the, the actual literal definition of dysfunctional.
1: Yeah, you um, uh, you've you covered the uh, the Clinton era, you covered uh, the the Bush era, and obviously through Barack Obama uh, and now Trump. Of the people that you've covered, and they don't have to be famous yeah. people. Who are the Who are the people who stand out in your mind? Who are the most interesting people that you've written about uh, in your career?
0: You know, this su- it's sometimes the most surprising people. I um I, I, right before President Obama's second inauguration, um, I had heard a story about a man he had run into on an elevator who had given him a good luck charm. Yes, and I spent months trying to track this guy down because apparently President Obama had carried this luck charm for the rest of the campaign. And it took me months to find him. Nobody knew his name. But it turned out he had the most fascinating story, the most American, interesting story to tell. And and those in many ways are the most rewarding stories as a journalist. They're the ones where you're the only reporter out there even looking for something. And you find this, this treasure. Um, so it's, you know, it's often the more, I, I mean, there's so many interesting figures in, in politics. I mean, Trump is, how could you get more I- interesting than Trump? No, he, uh, he
1: would tell you that himself.
0: Right. But, you know, uh, to, to have seen Barack Obama's election, be, John McCain is just a never-ending source of fascination. There, mm-hmm. there are plenty of people in politics who are fun to cover, but in the end, the stories that you really, really remember are the ones that, that were just sort of all yours.
1: I asked you earlier about uh, how your own personal experiences shape uh, your uh, perception of stories and of the news. I want to ask you about healthcare because I know you've mm-hmm. had your own struggles in the healthcare system and your brother has had Struggles in the healthcare system. Talk about that and how you view the ongoing debate about healthcare, and how and whether that impacts on the way you write about it.
0: Um, it, it was really interesting. I had been covering healthcare since the ninety, the early nineties, when mm-hmm. when the Clintons tried to get a big major reform package in. I had moderated a healthcare forum of candidates in, in two thousand seven. I really, really thought I knew this subject inside out. And then my brother, who um, suffers from Asperger's and has, in his life, mostly worked a a series of of kind of low-paying jobs, um, suddenly developed kidney failure. And this was in 2000, the end of 2008. He had a health insurance policy. He had, out of his meager earnings, had paid religiously that he'd never missed a premium. Same company, six years. But it was a series of short-term policies um, that, by the way, this current administration would like to make more available than they were. So the company, once he gets sick, the insurance company decides that his initial test that diagnosed him six months before had been under one policy, and his diagnosis was under another, so they didn't have to cover any of it. And I really thought I was so smart about healthcare that there was just some bureaucrat, if I could just get to the right insurance company bureaucrat, I was going to get this fixed. And then as I went down the rabbit hole, I began to realize, no, I was getting trapped, my brother was getting trapped with a life-threatening illness in exactly the kind of situation I had written about other people. And one of my editors at Time, Michael Duffy, said, I was walking around the office just expressing my great frustration, he says, write this. And so I did and um, just explained one family's journey into this system where you even if you think you have coverage, mm-hmm. it isn't necessary. It's until you get sick, you don't know what right. you really have. Um, so we finally found coverage that was sort of stopgap through a low-income program in my home county, By the time uh, the Affordable Care Act passed, my brother was able to buy into the exchanges. Um, Now he has had yet another setback. His kidneys have completely failed, and he also has um, a a very, very aggressive kind of brain cancer. Yeah,
1: I'm so sorry.
0: Oh, well, thank you. But the one thing we're not worrying about, because his kidney failure, even though he's not 65, his kidney failure has put him onto Medicare. And so as we are... Rushing around and looking for the very best care that we can get for him, the one thing we are not worrying this time around is money. It's
1: yeah.
0: it's covered, and so we can actually focus on the things that matter more than that.
1: There was a period there where it looked like he was amassing. Some, I, I think I read somewhere fourteen thousand. That was just a diagnosis. Just him. for the diagnosis. Yes,
0: yeah. and also as we found out, you know, it's that if you aren't being insured, you're paying the the retail prices for you know, a lab test that somebody would pay who had insurance would pay twenty dollars for, we were being charged three and four and five hundred dollars for. It was uh, it was just a nightmare
1: yeah. of you know, I have my own experience in the healthcare care system. My daughter, Lauren, who has epilepsy from a very early age, and we almost went bankrupt because she then had a pre existing condition. We couldn't switch policies. They wouldn't cover her meds and some of the other things she needed. I've talked about that uh, before. But uh, so, you know, what strikes me watching the debate in Washington, and you're closer to it than I, uh, is uh, how all of this gets lost in – this sort of game of who's going to win and who's going to lose. And uh, it, it, it strips the debate of the seriousness that it warrants.
0: And I I can, it, it also gets all wrapped around into the, what people feel about the role of government. I mean, I can tell you, I have a number of relatives in Texas who are, their own healthcare situations are, you know, pretty close to the edge. And they are, you know, one diagnosis away from catastrophe. But you know they're conservatives. They're not comfortable with government having that big of a role. They they you know hate Obamacare. Um, Would they
1: not accept Medicare?
0: Well, that that's an interesting thing. I mean, of course, uh, Medicare somehow has even though the certainly all of the exact same arguments were raised about Medicare when it when it passed in the in the mid 1960s and and LBJ actually. Saw Medicare as the first step. It was going to be followed by Kitty Care. Mm-hmm. Um, he really saw, he had an expansive vision of the healthcare system. I mean, Medicare has financial problems, but I think quality problems, most people on it really like it.
1: Yeah. It's such an irony of remembering the guy during the healthcare debate who famously held up the sign saying, Tell, Keep the government's hands off my Medicare. Uh, Without any irony right. or uh, or apparent awareness that Medicare is a government uh, program, you uh, you talk about LBJ. You're uh, awash washing in history uh, right now, working on a book about. Uh, Nancy Reagan. Why, why did you choose this project?
0: Um, it was actually uh, the, one of my one of the editors at Simon and Schuster, who had been my editor at time, has over the years proposed any number of book ideas to me. But she came to me last year and said, "We'd really like a big, good book on Nancy Reagan." And I had just listened to her funeral a couple of months before that on on CSPAN, and I, I had found myself sort of being drawn into it. I'm, it's turning out though that that she's much more fascinating even than I thought. And the degree to which uh, you can find real moments of his presidency that would have come out entirely different if it hadn't been for her. And here is this woman who was the ultimate anti-feminist and yet had such a great sense of her own power. And she also had a sense of not only her husband's strengths, but his weaknesses. And where he trusted everybody, she trusted nobody, and um, it's it's. I am really enjoying kind of exploring this this uh, you know partnership of theirs.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm I'm not uh, steeped in Reagan history, but uh, the sense was that she was as much responsible for his sort of conversion from being a liberal kind of FDR Democrat to becoming. Uh, a kind of goldwater conservative now is that is, no, that, a, think, is that apocryphal
0: I think that 's a myth it 's really interesting because so people who felt betrayed by his transformation from the Hollywood liberal to conservative blame Nancy for that. You get to the White House, and the conservatives who felt betrayed by his overtures to the Soviet Union and his you know not being as aggressive on abortion. Then they blame Nancy for being the secret liberal in the family. Um, I think he was who he was. There's a line in one of Lou Cannon's biographies of him that really sticks with me and that I'm using as kind of my North Star in writing this book, which is that Reagan always had a clear sense of where he wanted to go But that Nancy had the clearer sense of what it was going to take to get there.
1: Yeah, yeah. What did you discover that surprised you the most?
0: Oh, there's so many things. Um, I want to
1: give the book away.
0: I'm I'm just, um, I am finding, uh, in particular, uh, during moments like Iran-Contra, she, um, she knew sort of where he needed to be. And, and on, when he went on television, he was going to have to admit that he traded arms for hostages. And there was a lot of resistance in the West Wing. She sort of put the pieces in place so that he would have the space to sort of get to where he needed to be for his political That's survival. pretty
1: extraordinary because the, the typical reaction of politicians and spouses is uh, concede nothing.
0: Well, and that was exactly what the the White House Counsel's Office wanted him to do. They wanted him to do a very sort of complicated, legalistic, defiant version of events. I, I think Nancy Reagan understood from talking to a lot of very smart political heads and also from knowing her own husband and sort of what he was capable of doing. She knew he, he had to he had to do something very different.
1: Yeah, you know the essence of crisis communications is figure out where the story's going and get there as quickly as possible. And that often is the most difficult thing for for politicians. Uh, and and where you get hurt is when you're stumbling. Along the way from point A to point B uh, and, and you don 't get there quickly enough, so that 's an impressive yeah. well there 's a story. moment where
0: she actually um, John Tower ran the independent yes. investigation of Iran yeah. country head
1: of the Armed Services committee and she and actually
0: Senate. sneaks him into the into the White House residence through a secret tunnel from the Treasury Department into the White House to have a private meeting with her husband to explain to him what the consequences are of this report
1: yeah last question on this Um, his kind of descent into uh alzheimer's um how what what how did she deal with that and how quickly how how early was she aware of it and how and how did she? What did she do to kind of protect him as a public figure from from awareness of it?
0: Um, I think this first signs of him doing things like getting lost and confused in places. The best evidence I have find, found is that it begins to show up in the early nineteen nineties.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so after he left,
0: right? Davis. And uh, you talk to people like Edmund Morris, who was the biographer who looked at every. Inch of his diaries, the, the handwriting never changes while he's in office. The, the The thought processes don't seem to change. What's really interesting is she becomes not only his personal caretaker, but she becomes the guardian of his legacy. Mm-hmm. Most presidents have decades after they leave office to shape and refine and and their their own legacies. Ronald Reagan was deprived of that, and it really did fall on Nancy Reagan.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward. When is the book uh, uh, going to be published? Uh, have I have to finish it, I obviously. have to
0: finish it. I turn it in in 2019. Good. So
1: We'll look forward to it. Great. Karen Tumulty, thank you so much. You've been an incredible presence around the Institute of Politics, and you're, uh, you're a great presence in American journalism, so it's great to be with you. It's
0: great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.